0: Buddhist Geeks, Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 224, The Study of Non-Symbolic Consciousness. We're joined this week by Harvard-trained social scientist, Dr. Jeffrey Martin, to explore his research on what he refers to as non-symbolic consciousness. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one time or monthly recurring donation by visiting Buddhist forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today with Jeffrey Martin. Jeffrey is a scholar and writer. He's a graduate student right now in psychology at Harvard University. He's the director of the Center for the Study of Non-Symbolic Consciousness, and he's also an author. He uh, co-wrote with Rod Pennington, The Fourth Awakening, which is an interesting work of spiritual fiction. Jeffrey, thanks so much again for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist geeks. I mean, you're not so much into the Buddhist realm, but I'd say for sure you're pushing it on the geek side of things.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I think I'm into every realm on this side of the fence.
0: You definitely are. That's one of the interesting things about your work is that it pulls from a lot of different areas. You are just telling me before the interview started that at Harvard, where you're doing your research and doing your studies, um, you're kind of pulling from all different departments. Right. Yeah. So to tell me a little bit about that, actually. That's kind of interesting, this sort of transdisciplinary approach. It's not super common, from what I understand.
1: No, not at all. It's actually what I did my PhD in at another institution. At CIS out in California, I went out there to learn how to do transdisciplinary scholarship because I just really believed strongly that knowledge was locked up in these very, very narrow disciplines and that the key to really advancing things was to figure out how to pull knowledge out of the various academic silos in ways that were credible to each of those silos or at least to as many of those silos as you could get them credible for and then combine them in ways that just took everything to a whole other level. So that's what I try to do everywhere I go, whether I'm at Harvard or I'm getting ready to go to Hong Kong for a year to Hong Kong Polytechnic University as a visiting professor. So I'll try to do that there as well. And I also try to do it across institutions. You know, I have collaborators that are really all around the world at uh, a very large number of universities and
0: private foundations and you name it. Nice. So one, one PhD wasn't enough then, huh? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to know how many master's degrees I had before that. <laughs> that's awesome. It's an interesting path for sure. It's one that's not taken, I would imagine, by very many people. So I'm sure as we go through the interview, people kind of get a sense for your approach and how it kind of informs the work with both your writing and then the non-symbolic consciousness work. First, with the writing piece, um, you co-wrote this book with a guy named Rod Pennington, and he's a professional writer.
1: He is. He's a longtime business partner of mine, but he's really, really a talented ghostwriter. And he has just ghostwritten so much amazing stuff. He's done a lot of ghostwriting for top fiction authors. He's done a lot of ghostwriting for Hollywood.
0: He's, you know, the guy who gets paid enormous amounts of money to fix scripts. And this book that you co-wrote with Rod, The Fourth Awakening, tell me a little bit about that piece of work and kind of what the general storyline is.
1: The general storyline is actually got a lot of nonfiction worked through it. It came about in sort of a fun way. Rod knew about my research. I was really, at the time, trying to figure out how to reach more deeply into the general population to find research participants. So we haven't really talked about it, but just for your audience. We research people who are in what we call persistent non-symbolic consciousness. So what that means to us is... uh, persistent non-dual awareness, enlightenments, persistent mystical states, unitive states, transcendental consciousness you know we have hundreds of different labels that people use for this uh, in our research we have a database of over a thousand uh, participants at this point. Uh, we've got a very very broad a very very broad longitudinal set of research experiments that we work on we do, six to twelve hours of interviewing in-depth with each person on cognitive psychology topics we give them all sorts of psychological assessments we're just beginning our phase of brain imaging Uh, with fmri we've done a lot of other types of physiological measurement and imaging like eeg and heart rate and breath rate and even some breath gas exchange stuff and all sorts of stuff so we really try to take this very holistic view of this population and this population we view as being across all sorts of different disciplines. You and I met, of course, because of the Buddhist aspect of our studies. So obviously Buddhists play a large role in this, as do people in every religion. There's a mystical component in every major and minor religion and spiritual system, and we try to be as broad as we possibly can. So this book was actually written to help us try to find people, because what we learned very early on is that if we contacted sort of the major teachers in a space. Oftentimes, it was difficult to get them to participate. It was difficult to get them to be open with us. You know, they have a vested interest. Lots of times, it's what they do for a living. And so, it became very clear early on that we needed to find the person who was sitting around a kitchen table in the Midwest, going to work every day, not really talking to anybody about The fact that this had happened to them and how it had integrated in their life over time. But that's very, very difficult to do because these folks don't like to stand up and wave their hands and say, oh, it's me, it's me. Because uh, when they have tried to talk to people, usually they get pushback from the people around them who tell them that they're crazy or whatever. So whether it's their wife or their kids or their friends at work or whatever, they learn not to talk about it fairly quickly. So it was actually a big challenge for us in the early days of trying to find these types of subjects. And uh, one of the ideas that Rod had was, you know, hey, let's, you know, write a book to do this. Maybe if we create a fiction book, fiction is something that's read very broadly across the population. And if we weave enough stuff into that fiction book that resonates with people, these people will probably come out and contact us. And that's, in fact, what happened. The book wound up being actually pretty successful. It sort of surprised us because it was really just designed to sort of reel these folks in. But it resonated with a lot of people and it uh, it became a pretty popular book, which was
0: Kind of cool. Hmm. That's fascinating. It's a really interesting approach to getting research subjects. And then the research itself, you know, this is something uh we connected probably close to a year ago now, um, when I was living in North Carolina. And you were telling me a bit about the research at that point, and I know a lot has progressed since then, but you were sharing some pretty fascinating kind of tentative findings from your research. Like you said, you have something like a thousand or more research participants at this point, what types of things are you going to be looking for in that piece of your research or what types of things are you already looking for?
1: Initially, the goal of this, well, let me actually back up and give a little bit of history.
0: Sure. Because I think it's easier to
1: answer sort of within the context of history. Uh, So how this started off was I went into a PhD program and I wanted to look at personal growth, self-help, type of concepts so i wanted to see if there was anything to sort of personal growth ideas self-help ideas it doesn't matter to me if it's law of attraction or if it's positive psychology whatever i knew that there was a huge disconnect at that point point in the literature between empirical positive psychology literature and what people walked into a bookstore and could buy so there were you know three or four books by uh, maybe tal ben shahar or Sonia lubomirsky or marty seligman or people like that but they're academics and they're not really rewarded in any way for promoting their books. You know, those three or four volumes are sort of jammed in between all of these other books. And, and when you read the stuff in all of the other books, for the most part, it goes against the empirical stuff. And oftentimes it goes against it in ways that it's bad for you. Uh, so I really just sort of wanted to pick through that, and nobody had ever really done any research on that. And I'd started to do research on that uh, many years before that Ph.D. program. And when I went into that Ph.D. program, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to codify it. I'm going to do this sort of this official transdisciplinary sort of way or whatever. And almost immediately what happened was the data that I'd accumulated at that point, which was a lot of data, sorted itself out. It was working a lot with groups, it was having a group test this idea and when I had a research group test an idea I noticed something very interesting and that is if it was an idea that was an effective idea that it could work for people psychologically generally what would happen is it would work for a very small number of people in the group and then another percentage of the people in the group would not have any effect from it and another percentage of people in the group would have seemingly very negative effects and actually after the third research group after the third thing that I explored those negative effects were so significant that I had to stop that research unethical grounds because i just couldn't deny anymore that there was this pattern and and it took me a while to figure out how to get around that and eventually i realized that if i just did the groups for a shorter period of time i was doing them for months of research at that point but if i just had them use the stuff for shorter periods of time you could catch those negative consequences in the early phases before they really manifested and you could you know have them stop doing it and then you could sort of continue on with the other people that were having the beneficial effects from it and so what shook out from that, basically, was this awareness that people are in a certain spot, psychologically, call it psychologically, call it the state of consciousness, you can call it whatever you want, but people are in a certain spot. And when you're in a certain spot, there's a certain technique that works for you, or a certain type of technique, a certain set of techniques uh, that will work for you in that spot. And if you use something else while you're in that spot, either nothing's going to happen, or it's going to have a pretty negative impact on you. And so the research had really shook out to a point where, people were able to sort of transition down this continuum. And eventually they all hit this wall and I couldn't find any techniques that were past that. And so what happens is people grow when they have a technique that works for them. And as I just mentioned, you know, when you're mismatched from your techniques, at best case, nothing happens, and at worst case, things start going worse for you. And so I was able to sort of successfully get people right up to this wall, but I didn't have any idea what the wall was. I felt like I sort of ran out of like the types of techniques that you would have in positive psychology or in sort of self-help type things. And I had had really no idea. I felt like I'd sort of led people into a brick wall in a way. Like I could increase their well-being enormously through just this process of understanding that you need this matching, and that you need to find the right technique at the right time, that eventually they would get to this point where I didn't know the next technique. I didn't know what the next set of technique was. And then all they could do was either stop using everything, or usually what they did is they held on tight to the last technique that was working for them, and then you just kind of spiral down. Or sometimes they stayed at the same spot, and it just wasn't as effective. It was kind of a disastrous period. And as I was looking at the data, I realized... That what was happening is that people seemed to be increasing as they went through this progression of techniques it seemed to be a progression towards increased cognitive and emotional thinking sort of thoughts and emotion based release. so it's like you know you start off deeply embedded in your thoughts with techniques that help you sort of to get a glimpse of that and then by the end of this, you know you're really, really good at, at releasing from sort of your repetitive negative thinking patterns or uh, even repetitive positive thinking patterns you know, negative impacts and your repetitive emotional negative emotional patterns, whatever. And I just thought to myself, okay, well, what would logically be kind of the next piece there? Well, parallel to that, I was looking into mind-matter interaction stuff because there was the secret and all of that. And I couldn't ignore the fact that it was part of the self-help stuff. And so I traced back the history of the New Thought Movement. And then I started traveling around the world, interviewing and talking to researchers who were doing parapsychology type stuff or advanced physics stuff that seemed to relate to it. There's a book called The Intention Experiment from Lynn McTaggart, which does a pretty good job of covering this. One issue with her book is that she covers it from a journalist perspective. And so she sort of buys all of these individual researchers' statements about their research in kind of a non-critical way because she doesn't really have a way to evaluate it. And I was a little different than that in that I had a way to evaluate all of their research. Uh, So I was able to sort of distill it down. And what I noticed was that what seemed to work for people, when people seemed to get these effects with some sort of mind-matter interaction, where they were testing tunneling electrons or random mechanical systems or whatever they were looking at, the subjects that were able to produce those effects were few and far between, but the one thing that those subjects seemed to represent consistently regardless of whose experiments I was talking to, and these people, for the most part, weren't talking to each other, so I was the only one that was kind of going between these different experiments and collecting this and then noticed this pattern, Uh, but it was that there was this boundary dissolution of their self between them and the experimental apparatus. And so they really felt like they, you know, more at one, you would say, with this experimental apparatus. And that was when sort of these bizarre effects uh, would show up statistically. And so that sort of snapped in for me at about the same time that I was really sort of puzzling over what would be the next thing, what would be the next type of release. And I thought, well, maybe it's like around this idea of this release of these boundaries. And so that led me into researching the non-symbolic stuff and starting to try to find people that really had dissolved a sense of self and had dissolved a sense of boundaries and whatnot. So this whole project sort of came out of that thing. I didn't start off wanting to look at enlightenment. I didn't start off with some sort of fascination about it. I actually started off trying to figure out if it was possible to fix the self-help book movement and get it sort of more in line with empirical positive psychology research. So coming sort of from that perspective, to me it was all one big huge psychological project, whether it was the early stuff, whether it's the current stuff. So when we start talking about these types of subjects, when we start talking about this continuum, it's really just an extension of that other continuum to me. You know, I'm just working on the other side of that wall. I'm trying to now figure out how is it that you get people past that wall. So I relayed that story simply because the larger context that this project is about, it's not... Just about can you find the place in people's brains where this is going on? You know, can we use uh, fMRI or some other type of technology, some other type of imaging technology to figure out what's going on? But it's actually about trying to figure out what can we use, what can we learn from those technologies to actually, you know, help people make a reliable and safe and even reversible transition into these other states of consciousness, if we want to call them that, or sort of other developmental. Uh, levels involving their sense of selfhood. So our project operates on a lot of different levels. I spend a lot of time interfacing with basic researchers around the world and spent a lot of time obviously doing a lot of basic research. But there's a whole other level that's about trying to figure out how you take that basic research and make it very reliably implemented for the population. And then there's a whole other level above that that's about how do you then interest the broader population in that once you have sort of those successful technologies. And so it's really this enormous project that deals with, you know, everything from toy companies and media companies and video game companies and uh, stuff like that, people who are basically responsible for creating culture and sort of figuring out, you know, can we get the webs out there to sort of embed this in culture. Obviously, if you can just have people do it as a function of playing, have people sort of get to these extraordinary states of well-being, from just playing the same shoot up video game that they would otherwise play, that's very helpful. Uh, and so, you know, we have research uh, works on that. Uh, we have, you know, artificial intelligence research that works on can you match people's consciousness and figure out how to have their virtual environments. And by virtual environments, I simply mean using a computer, even, interface with them in ways that can advance them along. Can we come up with um, neurofeedback systems that are capable of doing this a neural feedback system that's great if you're into neural feedback. that's great if you have sort of a science and engineering bent but if you're a extreme right-wing christian these concepts can be really really terrifying for you so we're trying to work with people in those communities trying to reach out to people in all the different religious communities to begin the dialogue and to be the conversation of hey you know these technologies are coming down the road we're making progress on them there's advancements going on here they're really really beneficial how is it that we can make sure that you know, we can come up with things that can benefit your population in a way that doesn't turn you off. So there's all sorts of layers going on here. It's really an enormous undertaking.
0: Mm, cool. Thank you. That's, that's really fascinating. And then could you share a little bit about some of the things that you're looking for in this research and also some of the things that you're finding?
1: Oh, That's a really good question as well. And we have a completely psychologically-based investigation into this going on. We're really looking for what's going on in the brain, what's going on in the nervous system. Uh, Regardless of whether you believe that consciousness is in the brain or there's a field and the brain is somehow like an antenna, whatever your particular belief is surrounding this, the bottom line is that the nervous system is really what does mediate our experience. And so it seemed a logical place for us to look and to try to investigate this. We've had an incredibly sophisticated, very expensive, very large effort to essentially just cross things off the biggest possible list that we can think of. So we threw for instance all sorts of psychological measures at people just to see what would shake out. The kind of things that you normally can't do in the academic research world. Ordinarily in the academic research world what happens is you get a grant and you follow sort of the very narrow structure of that grant and you can't really investigate more broadly you're really just sort of looking for that investigation to be successful so that you can get another grant and that one to be successful so that you can publish it and then get another grant. And we've been completely under the radar. We really haven't published anything. Our talks have been very, very sparing here and there at sort of some major academic psychology and consciousness types conferences, but not really to speak of at all with the public. This is really, I would say, the first major public interview that we're doing on this and we're really just doing it because we're at a point where you know the research is very mature and now we're headed into uh, the brain imaging and whatnot so initially we would look at things like we would give people personality psychology measures to take uh, we would give them emotional measures we would give them developmental measures uh, we would give them all sorts of specific things you know looking at anxiety depression you name it i mean we were just really trying to think of as big a list as we possibly could we were trying to find what's different about this group of people. And I think the most astonishing thing to us was that, in fact, almost nothing was different about this group of people. In those early days where we were doing mostly those sorts of paper and pencil measures, people were basically normal. And so on the one hand, they were representing various types of awakening experiences or spiritual experiences that were very persistent that stuck with them, that transformed who they were It transformed their sense of identity completely, in most cases, and on the other hand, they were showing up exactly like the rest of the population, except in a few areas. They weren't depressed, uh, which is certainly not like the normal population. They didn't have anxiety, again, not at all like the normal population, and they had extraordinary states of well-being. So whenever we gave them sort of those types of measures, they showed up differently than what a normal sample of sort of an equivalently matched sample of people just randomly selected from the population would show up as. But everything else, I mean, their personality, uh, their emotional stuff, their developmental levels, everything else was normal. The, the developmental one especially was a surprise. You know, I think a lot of people are familiar with a lot of the theorizing that's gone on from the Integra Institute and others um, where they're Really trying to sort of look at these composite developmental measures and say, well, you know, if you're enlightened or if you're awake or if you're non-dual or whatever term we want to use today, you must have higher levels of development across, you know, X, Y, or Z, especially something like ego development, Lovinger's ego development test. That's a popular one that gets referenced sort of in that world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in fact, they were normal. Uh, Now, they were higher than most people, but our sample is also often uh, more educated. And so if you look at matched controls for that, educated people basically scored in the same range as the sample. So literally just across everything, they wound up being normal but happy and not depressed and not anxious people, right? So we had to move on to sort of the next stage. And the next stage was uh, to go out and just really deeply interview them for many, many hours at a time and try to see if we could dig into things and get hints of places to look and start scratching things off the list that way. And I would say that's when things really, really got interesting for us. You know, we were asking cognitive psychology type questions. So we were asking about the nature of their thinking. We were asking about the nature of their emotions. We were asking about um, memory. We were asking about perception. We were asking about changes across those types of things. And what happened is that over a period of years, basically, a progression began to appear. Now, I'm not saying that you have to. It's not sort of like this developmental continuum where you begin at point A and you end at point Z, uh, you can, you know, jump right to point M and stay at point M for the rest of your life. But if you move on from point M to point N, pretty consistent changes seem to occur across one or more of those things that I just mentioned. So thinking, emotion, stuff like that. Uh, And so it was really sort of interesting over time. For a long time, for years, I resisted any notion of trying to put this in some sort of developmental continuum or path. But eventually, I just had to give that up. The data was just too overwhelming.
0: Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice.